Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today, I've got Dr. John Izzo and Nikki Dollywall on the podcast, and they are with the Men's Initiative, based out of the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. Uh, John Izzo, many of you will know well, he's been the author of many books. He is a pioneer in the world of corporate leadership, employee engagement, and social responsibility. Uh, He's also the co-founder of the Men's Initiative, whose mission it is to enhance the integrity and well-being of men for the benefit of families, communities, and the world. And John's a super smart guy because he hired Nikki Dollywall as his director of partnerships, who also joined us for the end of the podcast. The Men's Initiative, obviously a wonderful topic for the Men at Work podcast. Nikki and John and myself had a really great chat together. We talked a lot about the story and purpose behind the Men's Initiative, talked about this super important link between you know, men causing suffering and also suffering themselves. We talked about some big global issues as well and how spiritual awakening can contribute to a new paradigm for men's leadership. Either way, this is a wonderful podcast. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So let's jump into episode number 22. So, John, um, I'm thrilled to have you here. We've got Nikki, Nikki Dollywall, right, as well. Um, Thanks. Yeah, Nikki has just joined our team now as the director of engagement. Uh, and Nikki, I'm, I'm just, yeah. I'm just curious. Um, as a woman who's just joined the men's initiative, and we do have another woman in the organization as well. But what what, what attracted you to feel like you wanted to put some of your life energy <laughs> into helping men become more well and to uh, be better for others? You know, it comes down to the the conversation you had had earlier. The only way you can be an ally is if you yourself are able to engage and understand in what the other person might be feeling. Um, And you can't do that if you don't give the space to men to start to have those conversations. So how can I expect the men in my life to be my allies if they can't even engage in basic conversations about how they're feeling? So that opportunity to be a bit more fluid um, and to be a bit more flexible about what it means to be a, a man in the true sense of that word, whether that means that you ad- adopt more feminine perspectives or more masculine perspectives, but to truly think about what that means for yourself, then and only then can you start to create a space for others to start having those conversations. And that's what the Men's Initiative is doing that I felt I would love to be a part of. Um, we are 50% men, we are 50% women, uh, and that includes anyone with gender yeah. um, difference, mind you. But we can't go in a certain direction without the other half there. Um, and I can't try to move any needle on women's opportunities if the men aren't there with us. Uh, and that's not to say that's my sole um, rationale. I have, I have brothers, I have a father, I have a, you know, a husband, and, and how can I create a space for them mm. to live lives in a good and true and happy way uh, and that's what I'm hoping to do here with the men's initiative. I am dying to know, this has been on my mind since I looked at your, at your bio, you've been in the leadership world for 20 plus years, you know, you're 
well-respected, renowned, and you've got all you know, you got keynotes, you got programs, you got books. Why are you jumping into the world of men's stuff? Yeah, good, good, good question. Uh, nice place to begin. Um, well, I have to admit, in some ways, I came in hesitantly because over the last you know thirty years, I've always worked with men and women, you know, leaders, men and women in organizations, and. Uh, so the idea of being involved in starting an organization whose primary focus was men was something I almost had to be convinced was, was, was necessary. But the more that I you know, studied it, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that uh, there were two fundamental truths that we had to face. The one, which is obvious to almost everyone, which is that men are contributing to suffering. You know, that's no secret. And the Me Too movement has uh, just brought to light what all of us kind of knew intuitively, that men were more likely to perhaps use their power for, you know, uh, not so good means, that men were more likely to, uh, you know, uh, sexual assault, more likely to not be inclusive, more likely to have poor relationships with their kids, more likely to do violence. You know, all these things that we know. What I also realized, what was less talked about, was that men were also suffering in a variety of ways. Not only were they more likely to do violence, but were more likely to be the victims of violence. Not only were they more likely to have poor relationships with their kids, but they were more likely to be isolated and lonely and have fewer friendships and have poorer relationships with their kids. More likely to die from suicide, more likely to be addicted, more likely to be homeless, less likely to graduate from high school, university, or graduate school. I could go on. And so I began to kind of realize the connection between these two things, men contributing to suffering, that was impacting everyone, men, women, families, society, and that also men were suffering. And of course, that shouldn't be a secret because hurt people often hurt other people. So that's kind of what got me into the game. I guess the final thing, Travis, was I've spent a lot of my time, especially in recent years, on the issue of sustainability. The sustainability of really the human species and society dealing with issues like what I see as the the three big issues of our time, equality, environment, and uh, our ability to get along, you know, as as nations and communities with people who are different than us. And uh, I started realizing in many ways, I'm not blaming men, but perhaps the traditional male way of seeing the world, competition versus collaboration, growth and focus on money and possessions rather than on emotion and relationship, that perhaps though I wouldn't blame men, that the male way of thinking is part of what's gotten us into the challenges that we're in. So for all those reasons, I, I got intrigued. And uh, so that's, that's how it came to be. So, and so now here you are, I mean, you're the founder of Men's Initiative. I mean, you and, and Nikki and the rest of your team, you're doing, you know, I looked at your, at your website and, you know, speaking to Nikki earlier, you're doing a lot of different things. And so I wonder if you could, because it, I had a hard time finding you guys, mm-hmm. maybe for, you know, for my listeners, maybe you could t- tell a bit more about the Men's Initiative and, and what you're doing. I mean, there's, you've got everything from working with athletes to, you know, men struggling with, prostate cancer recovery, I mean, and everything in between. Yeah. 
Well, uh, let me try to kind of make a sense of that. And I'm one of three co-founders. And I think that itself uh, is illustrative of where we've come from. So one of the co-founders, David Kuhl, was a physician who uh, wrote a number of books about the end of life uh, and really spent a lot of time with people at the end of their lives and also spent a lot of time with soldiers, working with men especially, who were coming back from Afghanistan and war and that transition. Duncan Shields, who's a psychologist and who for, you know, almost 25 years has, was, I always say he was the guy they would send the men to who others couldn't get to, the men who were doing violence to themselves yeah. and to others. And he was somehow able to do that. Again, a lot of work with soldiers and protective services. And I'd spent my whole life in the, in the kind of, you know, business world, right, uh, with uh, leaders. And so um, we made some decisions early on that I think have kind of, so it may seem like it's just a collection of things, but I think I can make it clear why we're doing what we're doing. First, our mission is to enhance the integrity and well-being of men for the benefit of families, communities, and the world. So we're in the business of can we change the culture of men individually and collectively for the benefit of them and others. And we made a decision early on that, um, that it was really important to work with men who we call permission givers. Mm. Men who would influence how other men see things. Now, all men are important, but certain men are uh, more influential because of their position. Uh, men who protect us, military, firefighters, police officers, these are men who often young men look up to and... Uh, you know, or down to if they're not doing what they should be doing. Yeah. The men who entertain us, athletes and, uh, and entertainers, right? Uh, and finally, men who lead us, men in the business world who often have thousands and thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who work for them, who have an inordinate influence not only on the society, but on kind of shaping what it means to be a man. So a lot of our work has focused in those three areas, men who lead us, men who protect us, men who entertain us, including athletes. But there was a fourth category, which was men in significant transition. Because we believe that, first of all, we don't want to be elitist. We don't want to just work with, oh, great, you guys just want to work with men who you know, have right. power. Well, no, we want to work with men who other men look to to get cues. But there's also this category of men in transition, and transition is often that time when we are most open to change. Prostate cancer, a good example. Someone's diagnosed with cancer, it's a life-changing illness, even though most people don't die from it. Um, so in that transition, men suddenly looking at themselves in a different way. We're looking, though we're not in it yet, at the issue of young immigrant men uh, who are growing up in a society not their own and looking at what is it like to be a young immigrant man trying to integrate into a society that is not the one you came from, different than your culture, because we think that transition is an important moment where those young men could either become better men or, you know, become men who do harm to themselves and others. So, I don't know if that helps, but that's the architecture of how we decide what we're getting into. And we don't want to duplicate the wheel. We always, like, we're not doing, even though we have this great history of work with the military, we're doing very little with the military right now because we feel like a lot of other people are doing that work. And so, we want to step into the voids. And so, that's another thing that guides our work. Where can we add value of a new way of working with a group that perhaps is not being worked with effectively. So 
I mean, I think it's, it, it's a wonderful distillation of what you guys are doing. Um, I think where I'm curious about is the, you know, where else are the voids? I think it's obvious that the, the influencer model, I mean, Instagram has proved it works. Yes. So yeah, we know. yeah, yeah, we're influenced by other people. That's right. I mean, we're, yeah. so, so you're proving that. And, and, you know, I think, yeah, like you said, it would be, it would be easy for us just to go, yeah, we can just go work with a bunch of firefighters, soccer players, and, and military people. Right. So where, um, where else are the voids that you're seeing? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Uh, certainly, um, uh, incarcerated men is a void. Many times in our societies, uh, we write these people off once they, they go to prison. It's hard for them to find work, hard for them to, you know, they're more likely to, you know, uh, uh, do crime again and, and, and be lost in a variety of ways. Obviously, uh, uh, homeless and, and, and those struggling with addiction are, you know, I mean, certainly a lot of effort is going in there. And so far, we haven't felt like we could add value there, rather supporting other folks uh, uh, that are doing that kind of work. Uh, I think certainly in Canada, indigenous communities uh, is an area. But we have a phrase in our work, nothing, uh, 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 nothing uh, uh, about us without us which is, you know, we're not from the indigenous community. You know, we're not from the uh, immigrant community, new Canadians. We're all immigrants, but not new in our case. So we're very careful to try to understand these, cult these cultures before we engage and to work with others who really understand those cultures. So I think those are some of the voids. Uh, and I think men at work, actually, ironically, is a void because I think we're in a time where if you were to go into a workplace now and say, uh, my wife was talking about this just the other day, she said, boy, if you said like you're starting a men's group at the workplace, like everyone would be like, whoa, whoa, the last thing we want is the men to get together. Let's, let's yeah. just not do that. And so I think in the world of work, um, you know, is a void now too. Of how do we have men have conversations with each other that are productive and aren't seen as simply re trying to reinforce and retake uh, uh, the, yeah. the castle, if you will, and get back to being on top of the hill. It's it's so true. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded as you as you say that you know, men at work is a void, and obviously that's part of the reason I got this podcast. Um, there's two you know, two things. First is my friend Eric Arthrell did a study. Um, I should, you know, not on his own with with his team at Deloitte mm -hmm. called the Design of Everyday Men. Mm -hmm. Forget what came across it. Mm -hmm. Same conclusion. He's like, you know, men at men at work. Like, there's a there's a lot here, but it's also like the triple pressure of like family, work, and society. This, all those three pressures of trying to fit into man box culture, yep. they are difficult. And so it's hard to feel, you know, sympathy or empathy for men in that position. But his report was great, um, and it it just speaks truth to that. But the other one is that research coming out of you know, at a UBC as well from uh, Jennifer Berdahl. I've talked about her probably on half the episodes on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, she's got this, this great piece of research about men at work as far as, like, there's, there's the kind of maybe the influencers or the alphas that are kind of winning in these situations. Nobody else likes the culture they've created. But especially as men, we're just afraid to speak up. Yeah. So it's like we all know the emperor's got nothing on, but we don't want to say anything yeah. about it. yeah. Yeah, and you know, you kind of touch, uh, Travis, on, uh, you know, because one might ask, what is the, what is the, 
the, for lack of a better word, the change or the kind of journey that men need to go on to be both, uh, to suffer less and to contribute less to suffering. And uh, I think about our, we have a program for university athletes yeah. that we've been piloting at, at Stanford uh, with soccer there in West Point at the Elite Military Academy for the Army. Really? Uh, where we just started a few weeks ago, uh, likely soon in Oregon and at UBC with football at Army, which is kind of cool. And one of the interesting things is that if you look at that program, it tells you a little bit about the the structure of that program. It tells you a little bit about the journey we think men need to go on. The first journey is men need to start talking to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I often joke about sex, for example. People think that men talk a lot about sex. Well, you know, as a man, I can say men talk a lot about sex, but we actually never really talk about sex. No. Do men talk about intimacy with their partners, about their sex lives with their male friends, with their fathers, brothers? No. So we talk about sex, we don't really talk about sex. We have a saying, men talk about their problems mostly after they're solved. <laughs> so you tell your buddies or your friends, hey, I had a problem, but don't worry, I've got like... Got, got it fixed. By myself. Right, right. So getting men talking about their problems, about the things that are really going on in their lives. And one of the things I, we've discovered, and others have discovered this as well, is that when you create a safe container and, and simply ask good questions, men are really eager to talk to other men. And it's not that, and why do we have to talk to other men? Well, it's the same reason why often women need to talk to other women, because there is a different experience that we have, right? Yeah. Uh, like as a father of, of daughters, I say there's things that, that my, my wife can teach my daughters that I can't because I've never been a woman. I've never had the experience of growing up as a woman or seen as a woman. The second thing is, and you, you talked about the challenging piece. One of the elements of the athlete program is something that we call um, uh, 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 the brotherhood which is challenging them to think about what does it mean to be a better brother, a better brother to brothers and a better brother to sisters. So I think there's a couple of ways in which I say the brotherhood is not doing as well as the sisterhood. One is we're not authentically connecting with each other about what's happening in our lives and really talking about our experiences and being there for each other. But the other thing is we're not challenging each other. I always say in my own life, whenever I've not been my best self, my female friends are very likely to slap me upside the top of my head. My guy friends have been more likely to say, hey, you sure you want to do that? Okay, good. Well, you look, you, you do what you want to do, right? And so I think that to your point at work, right? So men may look at the culture of what other men are doing, but not speak up, not break the silence, not be, feel like that part of the brotherhood is to be challenging. And the flip side is when we're experiencing pain or difficulty or challenge, whether it's, boy, these demands are too much and it's keeping me from even having a decent family life. Or maybe I don't want to climb the ladder because the climbing the ladder is not really, the next step isn't the lifestyle that I want. But I'm afraid to say that because what do real men do? Real men compete and want to get as high on the ladder as they can, regardless of the consequences in their lives. So I think those two issues, men talking and talking genuinely and real with each other and being better brothers. I think to us, that's the crux of the change. If you said, what's the real change we're trying to make yeah. in men? Getting men talking to each other, to themselves, and, and getting them to be better brothers, to brothers and to sisters. 
And maybe a final thing is just generally to be more intentional. And that way it's not men's work, it's work that all human beings have to do, which is ask, what kind of man do I want to be? How am I doing? And how do I want to you know, move to being more that man? And of course that parallels a lot of the work I do with leaders. When I try and get leaders to say, what kind of leader do I want to be? Now let's get real. Like we have a little phrase we use in the athlete program, get clear, first of all. What's the man you want to be? Second, face the truth. <laughs> what is really true of me in this moment, in this experience, in my life, if I ask others, get feedback, face the truth, finally make a play, which is you can't do anything about what you did last week or last year, next week, next year, in this moment today, in this meeting, in this locker room, at home, on a date, make a play. Do something different than you did to become the man you want to be. So that's kind of, I don't know if that helps, but that's, that's kind of, the, the, so there's the model, that's in a way the model of change that we're working with. Well, it is, I mean, it is similar to leadership development, which is, you know, what kind of the world, the world I live in, and certainly, you know, but it's, the 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 man at work thing is is it's a real thing and it's you know I've I've come across in the last year at least a half a dozen clients that are stuck in this spot of like they're paralyzed by by indecision or uncertainty because they feel the cultural norm around things like as stupid as when they show up in the morning. These are, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not working with junior people. These are senior people in organizations. Right. And they're, they're like, well, if I came in at 9.15, I'd be able to get my daughter into daycare and then, you know, come in. But, you know, everyone's here at 8.30. Right. I'm like, are we going to spend an hour and a half coaching session talking about this? Like, that is garbage, man. Yeah. Like, nothing. You're not going to get, like, well, they'll be fired. or. But more it's like, you're, you're a man at work if you just kind of shut up and do the work. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, one of the things that we, um, one of the folks we've worked with is Heineken in Mexico. Now, Mexico is a very, you know, uh, male-dominated culture. A lot of the kind of what we think of the, as the kind of uh, traditional male views are very prominent in Mexico. The Mexicans are here, they would agree with me. It's not like some, it's not a slam on Mexico. It's, nope. it's true, right? <laughs> And so Heineken Mexico asked us to come in and work with, uh, with them because they were integrating more and more women into the workplace and into leadership. Can we help this become a more inclusive place? And one of the interesting things was the difference of like, so when a woman would get, get pregnant, it was like assumed now she didn't want to climb the ladder anymore. Uh, and, and in fact, she should probably go home and like take care of the kids. Now, of course, that's not fair to women, so we had to work with the mean. But the flip side was, now man has a baby. No, no, we, you're supposed to be like back there as soon as possible, yeah. uh, working even harder than you were before now. That's right, right? now you got a family you yeah, got to yeah. for. And so, the, so on both sides, unfair expectations. And one of the things to me about the whole movement of, of I guess, inclusion is can we all play across the whole playing field? So can a woman be uh, dominant and assertive without being called some words that yeah. people might use? Can a woman um, care as much about her career as she cares about being a mother, or maybe choose not to have kids at all? But but men, for, so the glass ceiling is the challenge for women, and, and they're beginning to break through that, thank goodness, and men need to help, not there yet. But the door that men often have to break through is the nursery door. 
that we could care about these other things. That on Friday night we say, I don't want to go to that meeting because this thing in my personal life or my family life is more important to me and still be seen as a, as a man of worth to ourselves and to others. So I agree. That, that, and, and again, we're making progress. But these are the kind of questions in the workplace that we have to begin to ask authentically. You know? And then you throw in the whole Me Too experience now where a lot of men are very, don't know what they can do anymore. I've heard men, young men, uh, say, I don't know what I can say anymore. Can I compliment a woman? Um, can I hug someone? And what it's led to is people saying, well, I'm not even going to meet with a, a, yeah. a, a woman, right? So that's not good either, right? So we've got to find a way to have these conversations, right? And that's part of what we did at Heineken, and it yeah. was very effective. They're doing the program now. We, we kind of developed it and piloted it, and now they're doing it in, in Spanish. Yeah. I could imagine that that would be you know, edgy in, in some Latin cultures. Uh, i got to tell you, though, man, I think we need the same thing here. I, like I, I don't think. I mean, I think we can sit here and go, oh well, in Mexico and and yeah, sure. Like there's there's an undertone of machismo culture, yeah. and it exists in the workplace here. Yes. And I think, I mean, um, part of part of the, the the work is maybe it's back to your point earlier. Like we probably do need some men's groups in work. Yeah, we you know, do. I, like right. I know Eric and, Eric Arthrell at Deloitte started one. You know, called they called the men of. I forget. Anyway, he had a, a group that they got together and just, it was around a boardroom table, so it wasn't, you know, super intimate. <laughs> Very manly, around a boardroom. Very structured, <laughs> strong agenda. Um, but, you know, that, that to me, I think is where we're, yeah, we're starting to, and I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're working on this too, starting to see it's like, oh, well, men, men are allies, and, you know, helping, yes. helping around the, yes. the equity thing. Maybe allyship actually looks like Let's get together as men and figure out what's like what's not working on our side, and then maybe we go, you know kind of clean up our own backyard first, and then we go out. Yeah, you know when we first started the men's initiative, one of the biggest worries for us was how will women, and particularly women who are involved in the women's leadership movement and the women's empowerment and inclusion movement, would respond to what we're doing. And, uh, and we really were grateful that we realized that pretty much as soon as we explained what we were doing, they were like, yes, you need to do this. And yes, the men need to meet and to talk to each other. If that's what you're talking about, you need to do that. And so I, I would hope that we would be in a time where women and men would recognize that. And I think what I'm saying is the response we've seen indicates there's more openness than we think. So maybe men are too timid about doing that. If we're meeting for the right reasons and having the right conversations, I actually think women will be supportive of, of what we're trying to do. Well, yeah, and I mean, the, the what's in it for them is they're like, yeah, great. I mean, this would be, wouldn't this be amazing? Because then we'd have men that are a little more aware of their impact, you know, and, and a little more connected to the other parts of their lives that are important, and especially if they have families. For instance, like, oh, maybe they would miss a meeting, right? Maybe they're more supportive of, of a career. And it's, um, but it's certainly, we got, we got, a, we got a long way to go. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, you've been in this game, you know, 20 plus years. You know, are you seeing, are you seeing the shift? Or is part of the reason that you're, that you're, you know, both feed in on the men's initiatives because you're not? I mean, I'm. Well, I think, um, 
you know, I think, I feel about this issue the same way I feel about generally humanity's progress, which is uh, all the trends are mostly in the right, mostly in the right direction, but it's not going fast enough, right? So I think we are obviously creating a more inclusive place, at least in most societies in the world. It's not going fast enough, right? I think men are starting to talk, but how can we accelerate that so that it can happen more quickly? We're starting to talk about sustainability and, and our relationship with the planet and with each other uh, in rich countries and, and less uh, uh, developed countries, but not going fast enough. So the way I see it is we're, you know, we're joining our hands to, uh, in a bigger movement to accelerate the shift of human consciousness that's required for humanity to thrive in the future, right? So if you go up to the biggest level, that, that's why our mission, Enhance the Integrity and Well-Being of Men for Families, Communities, and the World, because we believe ultimately this is about evolving our societies to a thriving capacity. So to answer your question, I think it is changing, but not fast enough. We need to accelerate it, and, and that's you know part of what we're hoping to be a part of doing. You, you put it um, very beautifully. I mean, to sh shift shift human consciousness, and I gotta, you know, as a, a big part of me is looking in the mirror, going, "Wow, like this is a, you know, we we know generally speaking, and I'll speak in generalities here, women are a lot more conscious than we are." <laughs> so, is you know, there's there's some work to do there, and um, you know, but I I could imagine you know going in and trying to run a corporate seminar on you know, evolving the human consciousness <laughs> might be, could be a tough sell. Yeah, yeah, so we don't title it that, right? We don't title it that. And, you know, when we say that women are more conscious, I think it's like all, it's like our entire about generations, right? Uh, it's overlapping bell curves. Obviously, there are many men who are very conscious and very evolved in all kinds of ways. And there are women who are less conscious and less evolved in all kinds right? So they're overlapping bell curves. But I think we as men, it's no secret to men. That if you were to ask men, if women were running the world, if we were honest with ourselves, would we probably be in a little less of a mess than we're in now? Probably. Because women, you know, uh, I think, again, overlapping bell curves, are more likely to focus on relationships, more likely to focus on equity, more likely to focus on empathy. It's one reason that there's real value in having both those energies, feminine and masculine, which isn't really about male and female. It's the feminine and the masculine energy. And, 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 you know, Travis, in our work, we say, look, there, there's nothing inherently bad about the male energy. There's, it's okay sometimes to not talk about our feelings and just get to solving a problem. Uh, competition is as valuable as collaboration in some contexts, right? It's okay to be stoic sometimes. If I'm a soldier or a firefighter, a man or woman, or a competitive athlete, you know, being vulnerable in the moment when I'm, uh, you know, uh, in these situations isn't necessarily uh, adaptive. Um, but if you take that same stoicism and you put it now in your family, in your personal life with your friends, then suddenly you have a problem, right? So it's not we're trying to destroy the male energy. And if you talk to, it's funny thing is, I do a lot of work as you did in the workplace, right? 
So if you go to really male-dominated workplaces, the women will be like, ah, this place just needs some more women, because they'll be like, but then if you go to these really female-dominated workplaces, the women will be saying, God, we need some men around here, right? And it's because there is a complementary nature, a yin and a yang to the male and the female energies. Neither one is bad, right? But if everyone can play on the whole playing field and be inclusive and do the work of being a human, which is intentionality and and, and being clear on who I want to be and moving towards that, that's what we want. We're not trying to say, you know, that the male and the female energies have no differences. And again, today we're in a world where, you know, gender and gender identity is also a kind of, you know, a changing now spectrum. And we're very respectful of that in our, in our work as well. So I like to talk about the male and the female energy, traditional energies, more than, you know, necessarily sex as a kind of, you know, a biological gender. Yeah, you can take it out of, out of the gender equation. You know, it's interesting, I'm, my, I'm taking my men's group through a workshop tonight on um, relating to the feminine. Mm-hmm. And they don't know this yet, and they won't know this <laughs> until it happens tonight. But the first step is, you've got, like as men, we have to get in touch with our own feminine energy. Yes. We make our own feminine energy wrong so many times that we just over-lean on masculine energy, and then all of a sudden, you're like, you're right, you know, stoicism doesn't really work well for parenting. There's a video we like to show in our athlete program of uh, a man talking about his own experiences that shaped how he saw being a man. And he was talking about he has a daughter and a son about the same age. And he said when his daughter was like four or five years old, if she came to him crying, he would come, come here, honey, come here, you know, get it out, get it out, it's good. He said at four or five years old, and he never had thought consciously about making a decision. When his son would come, he'd kind of comfort him for a moment, but then he would say, now, calm down. Get yourself together. You know, just what's yeah. wrong? Yeah. Tell me what's wrong. Now, go to your room, and when you're ready to talk to me like a man, come and tell me what's wrong. And he said he had this kind of, he said, what am I doing? What am I doing? Where did that come from? And then he talks about his own experiences with his own father, who was a good father and a good man, but who would never really let others see that side of himself. So he had learned unconsciously that, well, boys, men, that's not part of being a man. And it was like a tape that was playing in the back of his subconscious that, you know, though intellectually he would probably have rejected it, that's exactly what he was teaching his own son is, look, not okay for a man to be in that place. Woman's okay to be in that place, not a man. Right? And Get yourself together. But that, I mean, that's kind of like, that's where the whole thing comes together. I mean, if we want to create an, a new model for masculinity where, you know, where people who are feeling masculine identified in the moment or in the day, they can actually own all of it, the whole spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that to me is is where the work starts. I mean, that's what that's what my men's group is focused on. I mean, there's yeah. we don't sit around and talk. We're like, no, we're like we actually need to retrain what's going on in your nervous yeah. system. It's true because all that stuff that happened when you were a kid, you can pretend it doesn't matter, but right. it does. It's yeah. still there. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting when we were work, when we work with some of these young athletes. Uh, one of the things we find is like. They've been told often, that some of them, many of them, have been told a different story. Their mothers and fathers told them a new way of being a man. But nonetheless, these stereotypes and paradigms remain there, you know. 
And like when we were working with a football team, we put it this way. Like, so imagine if you could only had two plays that you could make, the short pass and the long pass. You can never run. You can never, you know, the quarterback sneak. There's not, all you can do are these two. Do you think you'd win the game? Well, no. Why? Well, because there's times when you have to do other plays. And so for men, what were the emotions we were allowed? Anger, assertiveness, uh, stoicism, uh, not vulnerability, asking for help, uh, empathy. And so, like, you know, if those are, if those are fenced out of those opportunities, and again, you could say the same thing was true for women, where we put them this fence around what it meant to be a woman. So don't, don't go outside that fence. These plays are not available to you. We need these plays available to, to all of us because that's how human beings can, can thrive. Right. Yeah. I mean, what's it? Yeah. I mean, I, two plays is probably generous. We usually <laughs> we uh, that's right. we tend to we tend to stick with one. Yeah. Um, like one of the examples yeah. I use with with young men is so you break up with your girlfriend, and uh, if there's my David Cool, one of our co-founders, is only he likes to boil to only three emotions: mad, sad, and glad. So if a man is allowed to be mad, real men get mad, they have anger, they can, they can be assertive, right? Uh, not so, so good to be sad, you know. And so you break up with your girlfriend and you're really sad. You're sad that she's chosen not to be with you, but because it's not okay to be sad, you get angry. Yeah. So whether it's violence or verbal, you know, uh, anger, you wind up expressing anger when, when you're actually feeling is sadness. So there's a practical example of where not being able to play on the whole field, then, 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 you, then you wind up with a restraining order, you wind up just being seen as a jerk by everyone, including your friends and, the, and this person you used to love, when what you really need to do is to be okay with that emotion of being sad. Right, to be able to actually express what's true in your, yeah, in, your in your heart. And I'm simplifying it, but that's a real-life example to me. And the young men go, yeah, I get that. Like, I've had that experience where I got mad, but what I really was feeling was sad. Right. There's some, there's some underlying emotion that they're choosing to feel as anger. Yeah. So now... So it's okay to say to your buddy, man, I'm really angry at yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But to say, oh, God, I'm really bummed. Wrist. Oh, yeah. God. You know, if you're or there's therapist, that. talk to your talk to one of our right. female friends. Right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, we kind of push it off, right? So yeah. that's that's the brotherhood piece too, where it's like someone brings a man brings that kind of emotion to you, and it's like, ooh, that's too much. Yeah. So how can we yeah. hold it? You know, one of the guys, the guy in Toronto, is Doctor By. That's not his real name, but he has a radio show. He's a beautiful man. He's a Doctor By. He has podcasts and stuff. And, and he's this beautiful man, and he's an African-American man. He'll say to you, how are you? And I say, well, I'm good. He goes, no, no. How are you really? And he said, we don't do that enough as, as men. Nathan Adrian, who's an Olympic gold medal swimmer who just had testicular cancer, but he's back going to compete in the Olympics this summer, is one of our champions for good men in sports. So if you go to our goodmeninsport.org site, you'll see Nathan talking about some of his experience of being a man. But he talks about that too, like of just checking in with your friends, of really asking, how, how are you really? Not just accepting, fine, I'm okay. And we just have to be better uh, brothers for each other as men. You know, there's research that shows before puberty, young boys and young um, uh, 
uh, girls have about the same amount of intimate friendships with uh, people of the same sex. After puberty, radical difference. Uh, the girls often maintain these very deep friendships with the other girls, and the boys often become isolated without those deep friendships. And as Dr. Vibe says, the most dangerous man is a man who's screaming on the inside, but nothing's coming out. And whenever you hear these stories of these men who, whether the Las Vegas shooter, remember? Yeah. What's the most common thing people say about those men or that teenage boy who goes and shoots up a school? They say he was so quiet, you hardly noticed him. I'm so surprised he did that. Well, we shouldn't be surprised because the most dangerous man is a man who's screaming on the inside but nothing's coming out. And that's the whole male culture. Now, most of us will never wind up going, thank goodness, going and shooting people because of it. But we might take our own lives. We might become addicted to work or to a substance. We might be less of a father than we could have been or a friend or be less human than we might have been or less successful because we couldn't access that. Well, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I think the chronic, like the chronic version of that is we're just less available to the world emotionally. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the shame of the whole thing is yeah. that, you know, we get to kind of feel bad for men here for a bit, but like it's just, <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a crappy place to live from. Yeah. Um, but the way out isn't clear, and I'm, I'm wondering how when you, you know, you're working with, you're working with, with young athletes in particular. How do you take that, like the concept? You're showing them like you break up with your girlfriend. And how do you, like, how do you show them the way out? You know, intellectually, but then help them move through it. Because yeah. I mean, I'm I'm primarily interested in in the embodied component. Like, what do you actually have to yeah. do? I love the yeah. research. I think it's important. Yeah. It's just not my yeah. not my area. Yeah. Well, whether it's with the firefighters, the police officers, the military, the athletes, you know, workplace leaders, the journey looks something like this. First, we don't begin with what's wrong with men. We ask them to get in touch with their higher possibility. Uh, who is a man in your life who you admire? Who you know, is perhaps the kind of man you would hope you might be. We've all had, not some famous man, a real man. What was one or two of your proudest moments where you felt you were the kind of man that you want to be? First, we want to get them in touch with their highest aspiration. Second, we, um, we, we want them to begin to talk about the challenges that they have had in their lives. In our firefighter program, one of the most common things is people say things like, I've said things in this group I've never said to anyone. In the athlete program, the young men will say, you know, I've never had these kind of conversations with other young men about what kind of man I want to be and naming it and being honest about how I'm doing or what it's actually like to be a young man now on campus, right? Um, and so I think the, for us, it's about, first of all, let's talk about the positives. Let's connect us to our aspiration. We know that shame, especially for men, remember men often, again, overlapping bell curve, not all men, but are socialized around hierarchy from a very early age, com competition with each other. Unfortunately, that's now creeping into feminine culture even with uh, social media, etc. And so the worst thing you do if you want a man to change is shame him because he goes underground. So if we start with, let's talk about what's wrong with men. Right? So we try to solve what's right with men. But what happens if we can't play across that whole field? What did I learn about being a man? 
and mostly just getting men talking to each other, whether it's the fire program, the police program, the military, the athlete program, all of our programs very light on teaching, very heavy on dialogue. And you've probably found this, Travis, that you know, I find once you open up the container, uh, men know the answer, right? They don't really need a lot of teaching. And they suddenly realize I'm not alone. And that's the journey. I'm not the only man in this workplace who feels I've sacrificed too much personally to be in the position I'm in. I'm not the only man who thinks that coming at 8.30 is, is not really every day, no matter what's going on in my life, is good. I'm not the only man who thinks that, uh, you know, that uh, growth just for its own sake is the only way that we could live in the world, whatever it is, right? Yeah, whatever the thing yeah. is. And so I think that, you know, to, to us there's that journey and then let's face the truth. Let's really look at what's happening and then let's begin to get very practical about how we move forward. So in all of our programs we try to give men tools to, just like a good coach does, right? Again, this is an overlap, right? Good tools so that they can continue to a be accountable to themselves but also accountable to others we know that people are about four times more likely to make changes in their lives any particular change if they're accountable to even one other person trying to make similar changes so part of it is just being starting to be accountable like you know for leaders for years i will tell leaders if you're working on being a better listener tell your people you're working on being a better listener and ask them for feedback. Tell me when I'm being a good listener. Tell me when you see I might have done it differently. Be real. Invite them to hold you accountable. We do the same thing with the athletes. Start saying to your colleagues, I'm working on being a more respectful young man. And so when you see me not being respectful, please give me feedback. When you see me being respectful, please tell me. Keep doing that. And something amazing happens when we begin to be accountable to other people. And for men especially, given the state of the brotherhood, when we start being accountable to each other for our best selves and asking to be better brothers, uh, men will often step up and, and do that. Yeah, if you can find, you know, find men that have the courage to step into that, you yeah. know, 100% accountability. Yeah. I mean, well, you're, you, and you, you coined this idea, you know, 100% responsibility. Uh, you're either 100 zero or zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my uh, key <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it lands really well with men, right? I mean, you know this, we grow by, we grow by challenge. Yes. Right? So, yes. you know, if, you, yeah. if I know that you're challenging me to, you know, hold me accountable, even if it's something like listening, well, my gosh, I'm up, I'm up for the challenge. Yeah, yeah. And men tend, again, remember overlapping bell curves, but like men do tend to be very goal-oriented and achievement, especially traditionally. So let's play, let's work with that. Let's make them set goals. Let's give them that sense of accomplishment. That's right. leave, again, by, leave by 4.30 every day this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, obviously many women are, are that way yeah. as, as well. But, you know, we have to work with the energy that's there, you know, for men. So I mean, I want to I want to turn this conversation a little yeah. bit and, and ask you what your what you think the you know the, the antidote might be out there for for leadership culture that we have and I'm I'm am working largely in in you know the Western world you right. know North America you know most cultures just haven't seen enough movement on gender equality and 
you know, part of me is like, well, you know, maybe we get men talking, it'll so help solve it. But you know, what else do you think is missing? I mean, you're, you're a big thinker, man. You got, you got lots of ideas. I'm sure you got something to say about this yeah. one. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I wish that, first of all, I wish I had the magic trick. Now I'm going to yeah. do the reveal and right off, <laughs> That's take right. the head off and the rabbit will come out of the John Izzo has just solved gender equity yeah. for us. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, maybe because of my background, um, I think almost all problems are ultimately spiritual problems. And then they're tactical problems. But they're spiritual problems first. So I'll give you an example. One of the exercises we do in our inclusion work, whether it's in the workplace or with athletes, is we have a circle experience where we, we give people a role to play. And they're either at the center of the circle, at the edge of the circle, outside the circle. And we start to ask them, what does it feel like to be outside the circle? What does it feel like to be in the center of the circle? What does it feel like to be wanting to get to the center but not knowing how to get there, etc.? And what we begin to realize is once people can develop this, this skill of empathy, of thinking about the experience of others, I think this is the trick because we are by nature compassionate. When we can get a man in our work with the athletes, and when we deal with sexual consent, one of the first things we do is ask the men to think about this question. How do you think women might experience sex and sexuality different than men do? And many of the young men have never thought about that. And they start to say, well, I guess if you're a woman, you worry that if you dress a certain way that people will say things about you. You worry about something being misinterpreted. You worry about getting pregnant. You worried about safety, going to the parking, that maybe this man is going to rape you, right? Things that a man never, most of those things never worry about, never worry about being objectified, never worry about being... Um, and so I think this empathy is the core skill. Mm. And I think at the highest level, when we deal with sexual consent, we take it to the highest level. We say, um, my friend Afroz Shaw, who was one of the UN champions for the earth because his work on cleaning up beaches in, from plastic in India, beautiful man. He says the thing that got him into the conversation around cleaning up the beaches is he saw how many marine animals and birds were being killed by the plastic. And he said, we're taking their lives without their consent. In other words, he had empathy for the experience of these other living creatures for whom we were taking their lives because of our convenience, not because we're evil, but without their consent. So I believe, so that's why I think empathy yeah. is actually the secret to solving all these problems. As I am man, can I think what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated workplace if I'm a a person of the dominant culture, I begin to think about what's it like to be a person not from that dominant culture. If I'm a person in the developed world, I start to think, what is it like to be a person in a country just trying to catch up to our society in the most basic way, right? What's it like to share this planet with all these other living things who, by the way, are not just sitting around waiting for a National Geographic camera crew to show up. They actually have a life of their own and to begin to realize they have as much right to exist and enjoy the planet as we do. So I think empathy is the key, then skill to get tactical 
about what am I going to do? Get focused. What actions can I take? That's the make a play part, right? But the spiritual awakening has to come first. Because it's like when I work with leaders in the workplace, I say, how do you drive change? The first thing is you've got to get people with you in the why and the what. Because if people are with you on the why and the what, all kinds of creativity and innovation will emerge. But until you have people on the why and the what, it's going to be like dragging them to the party, right? So you can't get tactical until you have these, and again, for lack of a better word, the spiritual awakening that then opens you up to say, now I've got to get tactical. And I think one reason we have not achieved what we need to do in sustainability is the vast majority of human beings, even if they intellectually get it, still don't emotionally feel the dysfunctional relationship we have with all the other living things on earth. And the moment we really get that, that's when the how will really emerge. But we like to work on tactics, whether it's in inclusion or the don't do this, sexual consent. We go in and tell men, don't do this, don't do that. Okay, good. We don't go there first. We go first, let's think about how women or others might experience sexuality different than us. Let's think about the impact. Let's try to get inside their experience. Oh, that doesn't feel good. Now let's think about what we might do. But without that awakening, there's no real energy for action, whether it's in leadership, in sustainability, in inclusion, in all of these, in my view. But that's my bias. The spiritual awakening always it's, comes uh, first. It's a bias we share. <laughs> Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the spiritual awakening of men will, will likely uh, take us a long way, a lot more than, than you know, a well-laid-out plan with, yeah. with no emotional content. Not that like a deep awakening, a deep awakening, right? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm a, from a Christian background, but I've studied a lot of other religions, have respect for all the truth in all of them. Is, you know, if there is a God or a divinity, uh, they don't have a, they, they're not a part of any religion. <laughs> Pretty sure about that. <laughs> but Jesus used the word conversion, which is a Greek word called, Greek word metanoia. But the Greek word metanoia literally just means to turn in another direction. So we think of conversion as now I'm a completely different person. So when I say a spiritual awakening, that's what I mean. A realization the way I've been isn't working for me. A realization the way I'm working isn't working for others. I'm not there yet. That's the work of the tactics and the accountability and the goals and the keeping it in front of yourself. And, and as Sam Keen says, like uh, I love what he says, the metanoia is the easy part, not easy to get to. But once you get it, the rest of it's just hard work. Yeah. But because it's hard work, you better have a deep turning. Because if I have that deep turning, whether it's inclusion, empathy, being a different kind of man, playing across the field, being a different leader, being more sustainable, changing our business, once I actually have turned, now I can do the hard work. But if I've only half turned, a quarter turned, it's too easy to turn back. Right. Yeah. yeah. And your plan's going to lack depth. Yeah. Yeah, because as soon as it gets hard, which it will, you'll stop. So uh, that's a, uh, I, I love I love what you said there. So um, where where's next? I mean, if you're you know you, you're on a big mission, um, I know I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the you know awakening awakening the spirit of men here. Yeah. Where's next for the men's initiative? Well, first, we're trying to really go deep in the things we're already doing. 
We're trying to prove that our athlete and coach program works because we think sports is a very important um, place where uh, young men are socialized with other men. So we want that program to prove it successful and spread it across North America. Uh, we have this program that is helping firefighters, men and women, by the way, deal with these very stoic cultures and to be able to talk about the tough things. And we're now working with police. We want to scale those programs, teach others to do it. So we're very focused on doing what we're doing now very well. At the same time, we are in search of perhaps a more vulnerable community that we might begin to do work with and we haven't landed yet. Again, we're into white space where we can make a difference and so we're, we're looking and, and thinking uh, uh, about that. So that's where our energy is focused right now and we're very intent on trying to bring this work into the business world with men and really trying to explore the best way to do that, right? Because as you said, it's, it's we're, you know, fraught with a lot of landmines that could be in the way of doing work with men in the, in the workplace and with men in their role as, as workers and leaders. Very intent on doing something in that space, but in the exploratory phase. And again, nothing about us without us. When we did the sports thing, first thing we did, we brought together 30 people in San Francisco, Canadians and Americans, athletes, former athletes, agents, people from Players Association, people who had done films and research, men and women on men and boys. We brought them together for two days and said, what needs to be done? Yeah. And so we're really big on understanding the landscape so that when we turn, we can walk with some clarity. So that's what we're doing in the business and the vulnerable community space. And of course, we have limited capacity, so better for us to do what we're doing well than to just do a hundred more things and be supportive of others who are, you know, we're not going to, it's like the sustainability, Johnism will not solve the human consciousness thrivability. I'm just a player in the game. The men's initiative will not solve uh, making men less uh, likely to suffer or cause suffering. So we want to find the places we can really contribute and do it well. That's yeah. uh it's a beautiful turn that you're making, and I, I love that um, you know the men's initiative is not trying to solve any problems because I think as men we know we don't need to solve any more <laughs> problems for anybody. Yeah. So um, thank you. Yeah. This has been a really inspiring conversation, and I you know I know my listeners are going to get a ton out of it, but uh, I mean for me personally, I just want to thank you for setting aside time to tell your story about the men's initiative. Nikki, uh, thank you for being here with us and for you know, helping to bring the work that you're doing out into the world. It's, uh, it's going to go some amazing places, and it already has, so I'm hoping this podcast helps to get the word out. That's a wrap on episode 22 with Dr. John Izzo and Nikki Daldiwal from the Men's Initiative. I hope you got a lot out of that podcast. I had a ton of fun recording it, chatting with them in person. If you did like this cast and you're enjoying Men at Work, please do uh, write a review or give me some thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever else you're listening to this podcast. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you all next week.